Mid-1995, the kids in America are clueless, and those on Gethin aren't faring any better. Cher Horowitz tries to play matchmaker, while Sov is merely thrown into the Kemmer house. They're both coming of age, and we try to see what that looks like, but there's no fixed formula. Instead, the story and film combine to give us a double vision. So I'm here this week with Goblinods. You can find them on Twitter and YouTube as Goblinods. And we're here talking about coming of age in 1995, looking at Ursula K. Le Guin's short story, Coming of Age of Carhide, published May 4th, 1995. And then the classic film Clueless by Amy Heckerling, which uh, is just a shortly after in July 19th, 1995. And so it's this great little look at a particular moment in time and these two sort of visions of coming of age and both very interesting and interesting to bring together. And, you know, Clueless in particular is just such a big hit. And uh, so uh, Goblinaz had mentioned it. And so I was hoping you could uh, maybe introduce a bit, you know, what's so, what's so great about this, but why are people love clueless so much uh I, I mean i can only guess why other people love it i think it's probably for the same reasons that people love jane austen novels um which clueless is based on emma by jane austen but i think it's something to do with how she uh, the writers in both i guess um sort of identify all the different kind of stereotypes of people and then really just roast them intensely but in a really loving way and so it's all very familiar, but amusing. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's, there's no like mean spirited, like, oh, look at this loser, but it's all like, you know, it, this very tender look at the sort of tribulations and weirdness of teens and their sort of fixations and, you know, the awkwardness and, and all of that. Yeah. And all these very familiar blind spots and, you know, some of the, some of the characters will feel more alien and more like, oh yeah, I made fun of those idiots when I was in high school or whatever. And some of them you're like, oh no, I'm, I'm that guy. Right, right. Yeah. It, it is very divided out into groups because we, we get it through this perspective of this uh, fairly well-off girl share and so you know her best friend is also from a sort of rich family and they're they're in the sort of upper crust cool kids sort of group and so there then there there are all these other groups that are sort of outside of them and, and so one of the, one of the main ones is the of the the skater kids or like the sort of um burnouts burnouts yeah and you know they're they're not exactly like you know the the nerds or anything but compared to them from their perspective is uh not not to be sort of interacted with in any serious capacity and so we get you know you you mentioned alien you know kind of perspective and and so that's what Russell K. Le Guin is sort of doing with her writing. So you first have Left Hand of Darkness in 1969, which introduces this planet Gethin, in which people are these androgynous beings, and there's a lot going on throughout that novel about the uh, the sort of sexuality that builds around that and then you know I was, I was looking um and so she had commented in in an interview at some point how when she wrote that and published it in 1969 you, you sort of need this this outside perspective of someone looking in and, and trying to make sense of all of this but what she finds she could do in 1995 with this story is to really sort of just throw us into the perspective of this young uh, Gethinian person named Sov and what it's really like to be, you know, sort of before puberty and then go through this shift and come of age. And there, there was a passage early on 
that I like that sort of outside of that core project, but that sort of parallels it in an interesting way. So we see Sov being born. And so it says, the first thing I remember is a huge dark place full of shouting and shadows. And I am falling upward through a golden light into the darkness. In thrilling terror, I scream. I am caught by my fall, held, held close. I weep, a voice so close to me that it seems to speak through my body, says softly, Sov, Sov, Sov. And then I am in, and then I'm given something wonderful to eat, something so sweet, so delicate, that never again will I eat anything quite so good. And um, goes down at the end of the next paragraph to say, uh, blows for the way clouds move, the way ice floats, the way boats sail, but not that word, not yet. And so I don't remember flying. I remember falling upwards through the golden light. And you know, you can sort of imagine that infantile perspective of just not actually understanding things, not having a concept, you just this rush of sensations. And you know, you know, the this coming of age transitional period is is in some ways quite similar where you have um, you know, this expectation that you understand so much and then turns out you don't you don't, and that's sort of taken very uh, upfront with, you know, the title Clueless, for instance, which uh, Cher calls herself at some point that this realization that I, that actually she doesn't know, you know, what, what this is all about. And so there's this shift from playing matchmaker to sort of starting to really understand in a very personal, serious way, this sort of romance world as something very real for her and not just this like, Thing to observe and a game to play. Yeah, coming of age in uh, Carhide was like a surprisingly good choice for a clueless sort of, I guess, not analog, parallel, whatever, like something like a companion, because they're essentially both, they're like anthropological pieces from the first person. So you've got Sav, who's part of this like weird androgynous alien culture, and Cher, who's um, certainly not part of the same subculture as the writer. And the way she talks, it's like she expects you to know what she, what she means, and uh, I don't know all the references she makes, and and she'll she'll like throw away lines like um, like my house is so classic, you know the pillars were made in 1972, and um, my mom died during a routine liposuction, and that kind of thing, as though you would understand this. Yeah, I mean the, the also the the mother death is is really this this very comical play on that, <laughs> yeah. that sort of history, right? Because we're adopting the story of, you know, this early 19th century novel. And so, you know, you would have mothers dying in, in childbirth and things like that, or, you know, for all sorts of reasons. And, you know, it's a real tragic problem. But but then it, here in this case, it's like the routine liposuction. And so it, it you, you get that same sort of plot beat, but in this very different kind of uh, superficial material 90s world. Yeah, and I think part of why it works so well is, um, I feel like, 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 in my opinion, Jane Austen's best works, which I mean, Emma is by far my favorite, but they, they will kind of commit to that tone. Like nothing is terribly serious. Even when the main character is suffering, it's kind of funny. Um, whether or not the character acknowledges it, although most of the time Cher does seem to acknowledge it. Well, no, I guess she doesn't have a great perspective on her own suffering, but the mother thing is surprising because it doesn't seem to bother her at all. We're not really expected to feel bad when she feels bad. Yeah, it comes up as a sort of matter of course. I mean, the only time it really comes up other than like introducing her character in the beginning is toward the end there's a comment the the father says you know he's never seen such sort of kindness and, and trying to make others happy and so on as since her mother and 
and so there's that that inheritance of that uh that sort of parental model and and there's a interesting parallel in the coming of age of carhide where sov is is terrified of coming of age and doesn't want to live this sort of post kemmer life and you know it's it seems very weird and, and alien you know whereas we're not, we're not in that quite you know completely alien perspective but it's described explicitly as alien here where from this childish perspective, it, it doesn't make any sense what these sort of older people are on about, the way they're feeling. But Sov says at one point, something with the the mother was the, the first time Sov got the sense of the possibility of being more rather than less human. And, and so there, there's something, you know, that shared sort of aspirational quality there. They still really sort of hone in on this, this sense of family, even as what that looks like is sort of shifting. It is really interesting to me that both stories kind of approach this idea of like the shame of puberty and the like how alien and disgusting sex is. I mean, and in the Carhide story, it's a lot more obvious, I think, because um, I think Sether, her friend, is the one who says something like, uh, why do we have to be animals? Because Kemmer for them is like ridiculously accelerated puberty, <laughs> like over a period of what, weeks, months? And then all of a sudden it's like, when they go into Kemmer, they basically are going into heat and they're just like uncontrollably horny. <laughs> they're basically exiled to like an orgy room. But even in Clueless, like Cher, Cher's a virgin, like as far as we know up until the end, although we can imagine that that probably changes right before the last scene, I would guess. But she has this great little speech about like how disgusting high school boys are and how she would never stoop to dating them because they're like dogs. She's like, you have to clean them and feed them. And they're just like these nervous creatures that jump and slobber over you, which seems to fit that sort of idea of like these pubescent sexual beings or animals. The virgin thing is an interesting switch where there's a comment very early on where you have Cher and, and her friend Dion, and then Ty is the new girl that they they make over and try to sort of, you know, bring joy to and make her popular and, and so on. Ty comments very early on, it's like, oh, you know, of course I'm not a virgin. It sets up the, the expectation of like, oh, you know, that's sort of matter, of course. But then we find out that both Cher and Dion are, um, Dion maybe in a slightly different capacity. <laughs> yeah, it's a te technicality kind of thing. But, it, you know, the, it, it's not this the same sort of thing as with Kemmer, where, you know, as, as you're saying, you know, they just go and it's like a few day nonstop orgy. Although so Sov is surprised to find out there's actually like food. They do like stop <laughs> right. somewhat. So, and and see, so, yeah, I mean, it's 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 an interesting, you know, literary depiction of the transition because, you know, it's it's like even if that that's not, you know, how we approach it, where you have, you know, people delegated off to this. Kemmer house and then once you're there it's like wild frenzy and then you leave and so on but but you do get that sense of the sort of childish perspective coming of age where you know the, it's it's this like switch very suddenly into what had seemed an alien world and then all of a sudden you start to really understand this whole new perspective and really start to rework your your understanding of how you relate to these other people, which is is something that happens also in Clueless, where Cher is is trying to come to this point of not being completely self-centered and to really, you know, m make things work out for others, and then and then also herself getting caught up back in like, oh, but I need to get, find love for myself too. And yeah, it's like they're both undergoing processes of being integrated into the community, like for a 
big chunk of the movie, people keep telling Cher how selfish she is. And at a certain point, she's like, okay, if I'm selfish, I guess I have to start working on that. And she starts like organizing charity drives and donating skis to people who've lost their homes in the, I forget where Pismo Beach is. It's definitely someplace where they don't have snow. I'm pretty sure. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, they don't really have that, you know, by her either, but you know, they don't really have the freedom to travel the way Right. Yeah. Uh, so, so, uh, I feel like that's probably where the un- misunderstanding occurs. She so does have a, a great sort of literary self-aware bit where she's in the car with Josh and Josh's girlfriend or, or whatever. And oh yeah. Uh, and so the 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 girlfriend says, you know, to thy own self be true. Attributes it to Hamlet, and then Cher corrects is like, oh, that's actually Polonius says that which she knows because of a Mel Gibson movie. And, um, yeah. But, but, but the, you know, the, the sort of shift that happens there is that it sounds like it's saying to be, you know, really honest and, you know, to be yourself, but that it's actually coming from this very self-interested perspective and, and suggesting, you know, be true to yourself and don't really worry about other people's, just focus on, you know, what you need, what, what sort of will advance your interests and be true to that. And so Cher is is trying to find ways of being, you know, helpful to others. You know, we see that through Josh, who wants to be a sort of environmental attorney. And then also one of the the original sort of issues in the film is is that she's failing her debate class because she's supposed to uh, give these talks on serious problems in the world and just keeps talking about herself and RSVPing for parties and such. So in fairness, I think her both of her speeches were excellent and really on point. I mean, what was it? She's talking about how a ba- basically American international policy for, I guess that there was turmoil in Haiti at the time. She's like, well, we should just add some add some deck chairs to the lawn, you know, just bring them all over. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was not entirely sure what to make of those two <laughs> scenes where her her Basic premise is, you know, not actually that absurd, but they're very short, shorter than I would imagine, you know, they would be. But obviously, you don't want to have a character just step off into a whole like five, 10 minute speech in the middle of the movie. But especially with the second one, it's like she has to give her original oral speech and seems completely unprepared and just kind of throws out this thing that forget what that was exactly. But I remember it made sense. And, you know, the, the RSVP thing, too, as well. It's like it's not really addressing in a very practical way like you know policies and such what they would look like but but there's the the sentiment of you know we asked people to rsvp because we were making a sit-down dinner and so more people showed up than rsvp'd and so now we had to redivide out the meals into smaller portions but we made it work and um you know and so yeah it doesn't say rsvp on the statue of liberty right yeah 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 and I mean, it's it's also this this very interesting you know dynamic where she fits into the sort of stereotype. Like she seems very like stuck up in a way. But mm-hmm. as as her father later recognizes and comparing it to her mother, I mean, you know, it is it is very nice and thoughtful to be like, oh, we'll we'll make it work. We'll get pull out some more chairs and we'll divide the food and instead of just being like, hey, you didn't RSVP, so get lost. And so and so that's that's you know we get we get a bit of her character there, but. I, I did find it, you know, that there is that sense where, I don't know, it's it's maybe understated or you're not supposed to quite recognize that at first. Yeah, I guess she fits the template for the sort of mean girl, 
but she never actually really does any mean girl things. Like the closest she comes maybe is trying to tell Ty to stay stay away from the burnouts, which might actually be a social kindness to her. But she's not, she doesn't even seem like, she's not the same sort of judgmental of the burnouts even as you would expect the, the malicious sorts of mean girls. She's just, she does very well in her social sphere and all she really knows is her social sphere and nothing outside of that. And she's never had any problems really. And she's always been top dog. And so she does her best to sort of, well, I guess like an Emma to, to sort of extend some of her bounty to the the common folk. Yeah. I mean, the she's definitely not really judgmental of the burnout group, but it's sort of trans, translating that class sensibility from Emma where, you know, it's like there people have their sort of places. And so, you know, Ty needs to end up with someone fitting for her station in life. And and so it, it, she's not really trying to be mean to either of them. It's just sort of like the, she is caught up in this sense of like the way the world works and, and what's right. And, you know, one of the sort of comedic bits of, of the movie is that, you know, it turns out she, she doesn't really quite understand that. And and so Ty does end up with Travis and there's the the inversion at the end where, you know, where in Jane Austen, you would get the sort of marriage plot. Here you have the two teachers married together at the end and they're shown from behind and you're supposed to imagine for a second that it's her and, and Josh, but it's like, oh, what are you, are you kidding? It's, you know, I'm only 16 and this is 1995. We don't do that anymore yeah. and so but but they are they are shown together and she catches the bouquet and it does end still with that expectation of, of marriage or at least that's what things are moving toward whereas for Le Guin there's that sense of you know just very long-term heavy experimentation yeah in fact marriage is like frowned upon or I, I don't think they call it marriage but like they call it like long-term coupling or they have some phrase for it I think but you don't want to kemmer with the same person for a long period of time, essentially. Yeah, and it's also, so it's this opportunity to really shift where it's like, um, there's the, the one person that Sove Kemmer's with repeatedly year after year, but the, the dynamics aren't even the same year after year. So, so it's like one year Sove is a woman and the next year Sove's a man. And, and it, there's that sort of fluidity where they can sort of shift. And, you know, I mean, one thing I, th I, I thought is interesting is the... They do have these social expectations. They're not completely indifferent. So it's like the the Thades have a tradition of Kemmering first as a woman. And so Sov does that. And then Sov's uh, child does that. And and, and so th there's, the, you know, there's that societal interest in making that happen, keeping up with certain traditions in that way. But it's not the same as for us, and and they're they're very happy to just sort of have things go however they work out. Yeah, it almost feels like the opposite traditions, but for the same reasons of like social cohesion and that kind of thing, and like child rearing. Like uh, Sov's family, if I remember, is I think her her grandparent or somebody basically says like you don't have to be like the rest of us where you know we just have lots of babies and that's what our family does um you can go to i think it's the fastness which is sort of the religious school monastery type of thing if you want to um but for them i mean i was reading up on wikipedia because i i'd forgotten a lot of the less left hand of darkness and the the you know greater background behind that world but it sounds like this idea of sort of being out I, in i think they call it somer when you're not in kemmer so when you're not in heat when you're androgynous for most of the year versus like having these brief periods when i don't know it's almost more it's more experimental to our eyes but it's almost more restricted and supposedly somehow this 
interaction of the sexes means that they don't really have wars on their planet. So it is kind of a pro-social stability type of thing rather than just like a libertine, you know, uh, free-for-all type of deal. Yeah, I mean, there's the comment that around the year Sova was born, there, there had been some sort of war, but then things had been peaceful. It had been, I think, 64 years or so. Sova is, is like 64 at this time. And so, you know, there have been a long run of peace, which... You know, particularly from the perspective of like 1995 is, you know, the the last 65 years for those readers were, you know, less so. And and so, yeah, I mean, it's that whole dynamic. And there's but so there's the the pre Kemmer perspective that I think is interesting where Sov's cousin is Sether and Sether comments how that they should just be civilized people and handle pregnancy through injections and it would be more genetically sound and, and so on. And they both find the whole process at first very, they call it dehumanizing, you know, and there, so there's a sense of losing control of one's body that's very terrifying and it's i find it interesting how Le Guin takes that to this very serious extreme where it's not just like arousal without you know very conscious intention that but that it's it's this presented as a very physical transformation a very radical shift that happens arbitrarily and then you know, the next time it can happen in completely different ways and and that it's you're not choosing exactly what happens but that you're basically formed by the sort of pressures of those you come into contact with and, and having to learn a sort of openness to just, you know, seeing whatever happens, happens. But then also some people seem to have this more dominant strain and will, you know, or at least the older people have, have a sense of responsibility to try to guide some of the, the younger ones through these sorts of shifts. But it, but it's it's very forced from the outside. Yeah, I wonder going back to that that sort of sense of I, I think you mentioned Sether um, saying that you know we should just impregnate people by injection or do it in the civilized way and that sort of thing. That that feels to me very much like teenagers wanting to reinvent the wheel, which like personally I think is just about the coolest thing about teenagers. But that I was like, sorry, now I now I've completely forgotten what I was going to say about that. Oh, I'm not Gen X, so I probably don't have the greatest perspective on this, but I get the sense that that was like the first of our set of generations that was really kind of rethinking this idea of like, you know, you get married in your 20s and then you settle down and pump out babies and whatever. Like they were the first kind of culture counterculture generation. And I wonder, I wonder whether Le Guin's depiction of Souther was like tying into that, picking up on that, or whether that really is just a phenomenon from, you know, thousands of years ago. Yeah, I don't know um, the precise history of that too well either. I do think that the, I mean, the technological aspect of that is is very timely, the sense of, you know, really starting to understand that, well, you could just make babies in a lab, you know, this artificial insemination and so on. And and so that that upends a lot of the way you, you might think of, you know, sort of like coupling, you know, make babies as early as possible, as many as possible. It's sort of upended when you start to introduce at least, you know, the possibility of, well, you know, I mean, if no one was having procreative sex, you could still just sort of reproduce the human race in labs and yeah. You know, if it became a serious enough problem, you do it at larger scales or whatever. And, you know, you, you could argue if that's like a how horrific that might be to you, your sensibilities. But, the, the, you know, the, it does upend the sense that, well, it has to be this way, though. And, and 
you know, that's sort of an extension of what Laguna is doing, where it's like you, you just you take on this this, you know, alien perspective to really pull things away where, you know, I mean, you can't you can't really argue against Sov's androgyny because it it's it's not a, it's it's not about like your perspective. It's just this race of beings is, you know, physiologically androgynous and shifts around. And that provides a sort of way into understanding, you know, what happens sort of socially around that time. Like you can get contemporary audiences to start thinking about alternative ways of, I guess, like living in an alternative, alternative sexualities by framing it as like a sci-fi story type of thing. Yeah. I mean, I mean, so this is, I mean, because the Left Hand of Darkness comes out in 1969. And so this is around the height of the new wave of science fiction, where you start to have a lot of people pumping out, you know, kind of on the softer end of science, but using the wide range of conceits that science fiction offers to really think through serious, like, social and philosophic ideas. And, and so, you know, this, this is one of the things that you can do through the sort of, you, you had mentioned before, anthropological perspective, but you know, you use that, that alien conceit to really get the sense of, you know, understanding in a, a very sort of serious and intimate way, these sorts of perspectives around androgyny and, you know, sexuality outside of, you know, very sort of standard, you know, nicety views, which, you know, so, some of which aren't even, you know, radically noticed that, you know, the these dynamics of understanding, you know, something like the Kemmer house is is like a kind of space that that would have existed for for a while but you you just imagine like well what if that was the norm and then what would society look like and it really sort of upends perspective in in a way that that it you know I, I think in a in a different way clueless is doing by sort of taking like Jane Austen and being like what if it was you know this sort of valley girl consumerist you know going shopping in high school driving around yeah they both um I think they kind of both have really like trad sensibilities ultimately, because even though from an outside perspective, you know, the Kemmer house is basically like a, a 1970s, like key party or whatever. It's just like on that planet, that's the status quo. And like all the adults do this, they raise their children to do this. It's not like these weird androgynous kids are rebelling and having a lot of sex. It's like to them, it's the equivalent of settling down, getting married, having kids. And in Clueless, it's like, okay, yeah, you're dealing sort of with not kind of with counterculture. I know like Cher is pretty mainstream, but it just has that that sort of flair to it, like how she and Dion have their um, Vivian Westwood kind of punky plaid little suits that they wear to school. But, you know, ultimately the movie does end up with everybody pairing off in a way that strongly implies that they're going to get married in fairly short order. Yeah, or at least that the there's that sort of imagination and what those pairings look like you know I, I don't I don't know it's, it's I feel like there's an implicit understanding in the audience that it, you know at least probably one at least one of those three high school couplings are not gonna sort of make it but yeah but that that's the sort of that's the end goal of the narrative but we see it you know in this 90s perspective through the much much older teachers and that that's sort of what they have to look forward to in a way but but yeah I mean there there are there is that lingering trad sense and yeah I hadn't really thought too much yet about the the Le Guin thing you said where it, it sort of cuts both ways where it, on one hand you have the radical reimagining but then it's also it's it's upholding the idea of the value of traditions and social quo and listening to the will, wisdom of your elders and not not really questioning too much 
why you know they mate the way that they do and and that it'll sort of just make sense once you kind of get into the flow of it yeah and the the elder perspective feels like kind of pleasantly patronizing i feel like throughout that story you know i, I think when she or when Sov Sov goes to the the fastness which is basically the religious school for i think it was a few months maybe um, one of the instructors there at some point basically registers how ignorant she is on some topic because of something she says, but basically says that that's good, actually, and that it, it's really endearing. And and so says that they don't really understand what this adult was telling them until they, you know, after their Kemmer, although I don't understand really what the adult was telling them either. Um, yeah, yeah it's... They, it, there's just the sense of like, oh, you know, I was so young, so naive. And then everything changed when I hit puberty, essentially, or became an adult, which I think is is pretty universal. And and it almost seems like, uh, yeah, it doesn't it it doesn't feel counterculture at all. It feels very in line with the status quo. Like, yeah, your elders were right. Yeah, but it's it's interesting, you know. I mean, the camera happens through there's there's a very openness toward substantial age gaps and forms of incest as well and stuff it's it's very you know removed from any normal sort of social qualms but i was i was intrigued by by this dynamic where you, so you have the value of passed down through the elders but there's also the Im- influence of peers right so so in kemmer you are gendered in a way that they're not in their everyday life. They're gendered in the moment by basically whatever role starts to play out organically between them and other people. And uh, maybe that's not quite comparable to sort of, uh, I don't know, cultural sort of pretenses, but but there's the dynamic and clueless where you see Cher, for instance, is in the car with Christian and he asked if she likes Billie Holiday and she's like, oh, I love him. And he says sarcastically, right. And, you know, because clearly she doesn't know who Billie Holiday is. And then later on, when she's trying to win over Josh, she starts watching the news and is not changing it to her like cartoons or whatever. And and he's like, oh, no, I love watching the news. And and there, so there's that that um conformist dynamic of adapting to what the other person likes and that's something you see a lot you know in older stories as well like Jane Austen there's a there's a great scene I like in the Northanger Abbey where the they're they're out on a walk and the the protagonist Catherine is caught up in these older ascetic concepts of the beautiful and sublime and the guy she's with who she's attracted to is introducing her to the ideas of the picturesque these sort of new aesthetic sensibilities and she doesn't understand what he's saying at all but she starts to just kind of parrot him and that helps win over some of his affection where he's just so pleased that she seems so smart in understanding these aesthetics just because it's parroting back and, and so that's what we see shared trying to do and and so there, there's something i mean really interesting the the car hide story about that 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 dynamic where it's not just this free-for-all of like oh just do whatever you want because it's not necessarily what you want it's very put upon it in many ways yeah i mean the kids in the story definitely very much don't want it like spend a lot of time talking about how horrible it is and at one point i think Sether's even railing about how um, it's not really railing we're lamenting how he's heard stories about how if you go into kemmer and there's nobody else around in kemmer you turn into a wild beast and you'll basically like rape anybody around and like they're scared of it but <laughs> back to the idea of them 
sort of taking on the characteristics of whoever it is that they're around. Yeah, I think that actually that connection makes a lot of sense to me. Like in Carhide, it's it's pheromones, right? But that's a pretty common phenomenon. I think that happens with anybody who's trying to ultimately trying to mate, I guess you sort of and I don't know, I guess it promotes social cohesion, right? If you if you get people sort of coming together, even if it starts out in these sort of very like LARPy ways where you're just nodding and smiling and playing along. I mean, that, that, I guess that's what, sort of what happens in the end, right? Is she's clearly being fake at many points, but the more she does it, the more it really sort of works out where there's a scene at the end where she, you know, finally sort of just gives in and gets tied together with the skater Travis. But Cher herself realizes that actually like, oh, you know, Travis is really passionate about this and it's actually kind of cool and he's very skilled and and so on and and so you know the there is a very strategic dynamic there but it's presented as her being sort of genuinely kind of like nice and socially uh, responsible but there's the you know another parallel is you know with Carhide, right it's this this radically exploratory of like you know sexual gender dynamics and so one of the big twists in Clueless is this realization that the guy that Cher had been pursuing for the sort of central act of the film, Christian, is gay and neither she nor her best friend had realized. Yeah, that's one of the funniest parts of the movie, I feel like. That's the sort of problem you're definitely never going to run into on Carhide because, you know, like even if somebody's the same sex as you, I mean, they have scenes in there too where even if if you're the same sex as somebody, you you still have sex with them. It's just, I guess, not, I don't know. Like they, they seem to be vaguely... I want to say vaguely heteronormative, but maybe I was just projecting onto that. Maybe I was just assuming that she's mostly sleeping with dudes. Yeah, I mean, I I wasn't quite sure how to make sense of that either. And then part of what Le Guin sets up is explicitly that it's almost impossible to put these into our terms that we we can understand. But (laughs) yeah. But, you know, there's the dynamic where it is very much this binary dynamic between one person, you know, becomes, say, like, male. And then if that's the first person you encounter, you'll become female. And that that has, you know, the whole range of implications, such as, like, now you can get pregnant and stuff. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, so they do have this same-sex interactions but it does seem secondary, as you're saying, that basically it's like it's just it's just fun in the moment. But the the real camera is is sort of this dynamic between different genders. Yeah, it's strange that that's talked about. So I mean, I guess it, it makes sense that it's talked about so much because the the physiology is so alien to us. But in terms of like the social level, I guess it's a little strange because really there aren't any implications as far as like who you're sleeping with, especially your first camera. I think somebody says that you're not actually able to get pregnant the first time around or the first few times. So it really is just exploratory. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting the way, so Le Guin sets us up, right? And this, and yeah, and then at the same time you have Clueless and the introduction that Christian is gay is this, it's such a wild shock. It's this really tense comical scene where they're doing the driving lesson and, you know, th- one of the first things we see in the film is Cher driving around and being really bad at it. And and so it's like one of the through lines of the story is that they're part of coming of age, you know, in 1995, America is learning how to drive. And similar to their, their cluelessness when it comes to, you know, social life and romance and so on is that uh, they're, they're very bad at driving and aren't even fully aware how bad that they are <laughs> right but but um they're so distracted with this realization that christian is gay that they 
Dion ends up driving onto the freeway. And it's this wild, you know, chaos that ensues where you have these these uh, bikers like overtaking them oh, yeah. and the the, <laughs> the the overloading sensation of the those engines. And even this old couple drives past them. Oh yeah, angrily. flips them off. And then they're being like chased by this like truck because they're going too slow. Yeah. But it, but yeah, so I mean, it, it creates this very visceral feeling I felt of the sort of coming to understand those sorts of uh, sexual dynamics that don't really make sense pre-puberty. The similar to, to the perspective we get through so of where it's like, everything is so alien, but then you start to really like, oh, okay, that's how that works. Yeah, actually, for Dion, it takes the near-death experience. And then I think that's when Cher's voiceover says something about how her virginity went from technical to non-existent after that point. And then, I mean, that's kind of the end of Dion's like uh, little story arc, basically, because in the last scene with her, you know, she's also at the wedding with Murray, her boyfriend. And yeah, it seems like she, that's sort of when she crosses from childhood into adulthood, essentially. That moment of nearly dying on the freeway and her boyfriend <laughs> trying to talk her through it or panicking, yelling, yell her through it, I guess. Yeah. What do you actually make of the, um, the near-death experiences? Because So there's that one you were just talking about, but then mm-hmm. there's the, everyone obsesses over Ty oh, yeah. after after there's like the incident where she's like flirting with these two guys in the mall and they like, they're like dangling her over the railing and... Everyone's like, oh my God, you almost died. And there's some rumors going around that the some they like tried to shoot. Oh, it's like her a or gang something. or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then uh Cher is getting jealous and saying, like, well, you know, I someone held me up at gunpoint the other day. Uh no one no one pays attention, but but she goes through the same thing. And and there's this this idea of like this moment of realization and that near-death experience. And it's 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 so weird how so many characters in the the story seem to go through something like that. When it's really, that's not a staple of coming of age. Nor is it necessarily a common part of living in Beverly Hills. That is funny though. Yeah, I'm trying to think of like what revelations actually came out of those other two near-death experiences. Because for Dion and Murray, it's like, I, I think that's one of those things that they've studied where if couples feel fear together, then then it like aggravates them hormonally or something. And then they become more interested in each other. I don't know if that's one of those, like, I don't know if it survived the replication crisis, but it's one of those things that I've heard. But like for Ty, she wasn't really, she didn't have this experience with any, well, I guess Christian saved her. And that's supposed to be an analog to the scene in Emma where um, Frank Churchill saves, oh gosh, what's her name? Harriet from, uh, from the evil gypsies. And the upshot of that in the novel was that Harriet then oh wait no she doesn't Harriet doesn't fall for um Frank Churchill but Emma or in this case Cher thinks oh well you know she must like this guy because he saved her life and then so when it's brought up later that that Harriet or Ty has a crush on somebody at first uh Emma thinks like oh well it must be Frank because he's the one who saved her and then there's that bombshell like no actually it's Mr. Knightley or in in Clueless's case it's Josh yeah there there's that's also something actually that Cher tries to manufacture early on where Ty gets her head bumped and then it's like oh well you know just just make it all dramatic and and try to have it so that uh what's his name Elton Elton. (laughs) yeah and see I mean I I guess I guess there's that's probably part of the dynamic where it's like uh that they need to have this sense of experience of like who comes and is their protection in a the dangerous world where as they're these clueless teens everything seems you know all sweet and nice but but actually there's part of coming of age is realizing that you need to start worrying about certain things <laughs> and that yeah 
that's what happens with with Cher is she's held up at gunpoint and uh, everyone's kind of blowing her off and it's Josh who comes and picks her up. Yeah, that's true. So that essentially it's like in in about half of those near-death experiences, it does result in a strengthened bond with like the the savior, I guess, or in, you know, like Dion's case, Murray sort of talked her through it without freaking out, out too much. In the that scene where Cher tries to get Elton and Ty together by having Elton like help her out when she's hit her head. Yeah, she's trying to like manufacture that relationship. And it's almost like just another of those examples of sort of LARPing as an adult. Like, okay, I've seen adults do things like this. This is how relationships work. Like this must be, (laughs) I must be able to just do this on purpose. Yeah, that's the Emma matchmaking gone wrong kind of plot. And, you know, and and then we see the, the flip side of that in carhide where the adults kind of know to stand back and and just sort of let things play out because you know we see through the film that very early on ty and and travis really kind of bond and hit it off and you know it's it's only through Cher's meddling that that doesn't really come to fruition it's earlier yeah yeah it's like she doesn't re- i guess in both cases Sov and Cher don't really understand the mechanics of of what this coming of age thing really is and they kind of well, so doesn't doesn't try to manually override it. She's just like, all right, I don't get it. I don't like it, but it's happening. Cher is like, all right, I'm going to try to replicate this manually and turn it to my advantage with really bad results. Yeah. And then, you know, I mean, I guess one, one big difference between the two works, you know, to go back to Christian is, you know, as you're saying at the beginning, like the, the film isn't especially mean to, to anyone. But, you know, he doesn't really get the the fruition of whatever, you know, whatever becomes of him that that's really not to be shown in the film and so he kind of just sort of recedes into the background as like this hurdle <laughs> yeah but yeah so, so in, in carhide that's like we, we get something where like you, you kind of see everyone kind of figures it out and it, it takes a while but it's not this like clean thing of like oh you put one person here and you put one person here and you get them to look at each other and you know this instant cupid arrow dynamic but that it's you know it it is it can be very hormonal and weird and uh alien seeming and and so on but that you know it seems to work out for gethin yeah i'm trying to figure out if uh on earth teenagers generally have the stereotype of like wanting to become adults as quickly as possible i'm assuming this is true of most teenagers i never experienced that but it seemed like what other people sort of talked about a lot and in carhide they have like very much the opposite of that it we don't encounter any child who's eager to become an adult because kemmer is so scary but i don't I can't quite think of how that actually comes across in Clueless. Like they're playing at being adults in some ways, but they don't necessarily see, they're not talking about how excited they are to go to college or anything. It's almost like Cher rules the roost and has no real reason to want to bud. Right. Yeah. I mean, there there is that detail in Carhide where Sov wants to get to work and wants to work in the garden and mm-hmm. is too young and doesn't understand and sulks and rages. And so I think there's that dynamic where, you know, the Sove and Sether and so on don't want to go through Kemmer because that's too scary. But they do want to be, you know, adults with both the responsibility and the freedom that comes with that, I think, in some ways. And Cher, I guess, you know, starts toward the end to try in a way that sort of fails horribly to help with her father's business. So I don't, I don't know. I, I think there there's there's an interesting dynamic of like what it means to to like a teenage perspective to want to grow up where in some cases that can be like, you know, you want to hit those milestones, 
but including, you know, Kemmer and so on. But in, in some cases, I think it can also be, you know, s- somewhat other kind of arbitrary understanding of like things like doing certain types of work is adult, even if you do it kind of haphazardly and LARPy. Is there anything else from um, either of these two that really sort of excited you that you wanted to talk through? There is the fact that they both, I feel like, are eminently cancelable works in the year of our Lord 2021. Maybe Clueless a little bit less so, but just with the like really inappropriate, especially to modern viewers or readers, um, like age gaps and like pseudo incestuous. I mean, people love to talk about how incestuous Clueless is because Josh is Cher's stepbrother. And similarly in uh, Coming of Age on Carhide in Carhide. Sort of the main love interest, I guess, is Sether, who is Sove's cousin, which they reference at some point as being like, you know, uh, I didn't have kids with him because that's not really cool, but we still had sex a lot. Yeah, th- I mean, they both get into that. They, they, tr- they try to, I guess, um, hedge their bets a bit with Clueless, where it's like they're, they're, the parents were married so briefly that she doesn't really know him. And so it's, it's like this technicality. Yeah. You know, so it's not really quite incest, but it, it keeps, uh, for almost an, an arbitrary reason, but just keeps the the sort of dynamics that you would have in, in like an older century. But um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, they, they both have the, these very, in some ways, troubling dynamics, you know, and, and I, I do like with Carhide how it's not this, it doesn't really come off as this, very propaganda like you know you know trying to teach you to understand this other world but that it really keeps a lot of the sort of discomfort and weirdness and uncertainty where it's not even you know something that quite maps onto like a very precise social strata but just just this this vaguer mixing up of the sort of social sexual dynamics yeah thinking about that story i kept like i I keep finding myself trying to map you know real world concepts onto what happens there so i'm like sort of mentally every time i hear kemmer replacing it with like in heat because otherwise i won't remember what's going on or won't really be able to conceptualize it because it is so alien yeah it does come together with this very tender core that you know, if, if you start to describe to someone the, the sort of basic outline of the story, you know, where it's like, oh, they go off to have these wild orgies while they're in heat and so on. Yeah. You know, you don't necessarily expect scenes like this. So there's this, this passage around where so Sov is very upset about this idea of going into Kemmer and, and kind of afraid of it. And so it says, I'm not in Kemmer, I said passionately. No, Geyer said, but next month I think you will be. I won't. My mother stroked my hair and face and arm. We shape each other to be human, old people used to say as they stroked babies or children or one another with those long, slow, soft caresses. And, uh, you know, I I really liked, you know, as the sort of core of the story that we shape each other to be human line, which I think is, you know, getting back to this idea of, you know, the, the way that the sexual awakening and continually reawakening year after year seems to our cultural sensibilities like it could be really traumatic. But then looking at things like the, the way Cher shifts herself to meet Christian halfway or Josh halfway, you know, there is there's a kind of tender dynamic to this idea that, you know, we shape each other and there's something comforting in that of, of giving in to, you know, counter to this to thine own self be true kind of idea, I guess. Yeah, they are at the heart, I think, both very like sweet stories. Although what you said about meeting Christian halfway and Josh halfway reminded me that it's 
like share and tie both sort of do that thing where, you know, they're falling in love with for the first time, or they they think they are, they're having weird feelings for the first time, essentially, and developing puppy love or infatuations or whatever. And so the first guy that each of them falls for is the wrong guy. And then almost immediately they switch over and they're like, no, 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 I'm in love with this guy now, which is kind of the same thing that happens to Sov the first time they come her. Where like they they go into that once they sort of get used to the orgy room, it's like the first person they sleep with, they're like, this is what love is. And then the second person they sleep with, and it happens like three times before they realize like, oh, okay, this is what camera is all about. Yeah. So so it says after that, I think it began to understand that I loved them all and they all loved me. And that that was the secret of the camera house, which is, you know, it's, it's a very different sort of sensibility to close on than clueless where, where you get the, the sort of end line is like whether you're somewhere or camera and heat or not gendered or not love is love and that that you know closing line is is one of the i guess more slogany bits of the story but it's very different from from that dynamic of like oh my god i almost had sex with christian and it turns <laughs> out actually he's not that great and so that would have been a huge mistake and then it ends with the, the sort of marriage scene yeah but i, I guess it's like I mean, in Clueless, they, they kind of, everybody maintains their bonds, right? Like, if I remember in Emma, um, Emma and Harriet's relationship gets pretty solidly messed up when Emma screws up her romances twice in a row. But in Clueless, or yeah, in Clueless, it's uh, Ty and Cher kind of, like, they're good again by the end of the movie. Everybody's still friends. They've still got that sense of camaraderie. So, you know, there's, I guess, platonic versus romantic love or whatever is happening with all the characters in Clueless at the end of it. Whereas, I guess, I mean, that's sort of what what Ursula Le Guin is saying in Coming of Age on Carhide with that last line about like, whether you're in Summer or Kemmer, like whether or not you're in Heat. I guess she's she's sort of tying all the types of love together, which makes sense in a society where um, you're expected to sort of like anybody who is pubes or like post-puberty or whatever, like before menopause, everybody sleeps with everybody. So there's no real distinction between sexual and, ro- and uh, platonic love, but just universal love all around of some sort or another. All right. And yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, one of the things that happens in contrast between Emma and Clueless is Ty's story kind of wraps up pretty quickly where it's it's just, it's kind of just like one like very quick scene where it's just like, oh, I could bring her to this event where Tyler will be or not Tyler uh, uh, what's his name I'm trying to think of which oh Travis oh Travis, yeah. yeah oh yeah did she orchestrate that or oh and I don't know I mean she's just kind of invited yeah she's kind of invited to the thing and it's not even it's not even like described like oh I'll bring Ty and they'll get together it's just mm-hmm. it's kind of there it's like a 20 30 second scene and you know next thing you know they're they're together at the wedding yeah. and and so yeah you don't really quite have the attention to all of that i think to really kind of upset their relationship so i think it it kind of cleans up in a way yeah i mean it also it's probably just much lower stakes in general because you know like jane austen's time like you can't just go around dating people you can't date one guy and then date another guy and then like you know you have to get married but i think by the time you were like 27 if you were still singled you were considered a hopeless spinster so they're on a much stricter sort of time scale with much more intense social stakes right yeah and so i think these are both ended up being these really interesting looks at this sort of 1995 perspective where They have these two very different visions, but it's kind of, you know, it all cleans up to elements of very real things that are going on there that weren't true, you know, say for like Jane Austen's time. Keeping what sort of works and then, you know, reimagining 
what needs reimagining into things that really kind of cohere quite well and resonate with various people. Yeah, quite enjoyable. I'm always happy to talk about Clueless. One of the greatest films of all time. Yeah, for sure. It was quite a very 90s energy, but also <laughs> a particular sort of it that has a strong resonance online feel. Oh, yeah. Is it, is it popular on the internet these days? I feel like I haven't. I feel like I'm uh, the only person who talks about it regularly. I don't, I don't know how widely popular it is. I'm not really clued in enough. But, you know, just, the, I don't know, the elements of its sensibility I just feel like mm. are kind of the elements of 90s nostalgia that I think are popular in, in certain crowds. There's also that that weird, um, she has that computer system for yes. determining her fashion that seemed uh, a little ahead of its time. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe rich people did that in the 90s, but it's, it kind of stuck out to me. Yeah, man. Why don't people do that now? I've been waiting for that technology since I was like 14 years old. <laughs> I know. Instead of, um, instead of just going into Kemmer and, and having things kind of just happen it's like you, you get the the computer to like tell you what what clothing lines are a match and and i guess that that's where interesting i mean i guess that's where share kind of learns this idea of like the computer has a formula for matchmaking and then she kind of applies the same idea from not so much classic literature, but like contemporary film adaptations of classic literature. Yeah, she is very like, I don't know, like she has like a decision tree kind of thing going on. She's like very linear and doesn't think about people's emotions really at all, which is weird. But it occurred to me, though, when you mentioned the like the clothing computer, the clothing software, whatever, the fashion software that on Carhide, they don't really, or in Carhide, they don't have, they don't talk about fashion or anything like that, right? There's no culture built up around trying to seduce a mate because you're not looking for a permanent one. You basically sleep with everybody. And there, so there's no sexual, not, I don't know, sexual tension's the right word. There's no like sexual competition at all. Yeah, Kemmer is very like just all nude all the time. <laughs> People come in and out and, you know, just sort of whatever goes. The bonobos. <laughs> And then Clueless is very sort of just reimagining and including like having it imagined as like a, almost computerized in a way, just like there's there's one perfect match and you need to find out. You just like kind of like align the puzzle pieces. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, so I, I think, you know, on a wider scale, you know, you bring these two works together and they kind of also are their own sort of puzzle pieces that bring together a larger sense of coming of age in 1995. And so, yeah, yeah so I mean, I wish I were old enough to have... Uh really been that you know I'm like I think I missed that by about 10 years being like a teenager in 95 that would be really interesting um especially if, if there must be somebody out there who was like the right age in 95 who read that short story and saw Clueless like I want to know that person right, right yeah like what did, what did you make of being at this intersection if you're like 15 16 at the time yeah I yeah. bet they still, you know, I'm sure they would get a lot less out of it than somebody who read it in their like 40s even, you know, because a big part of both of them, I think, is the sort of looking back on teenage years and like, oh, how silly we were thinking that we could do things differently or whatever. But it'd be cool to see somebody's perspective from like reading it, you know, as a teenager or watching it as a teenager and then revisiting it as an adult. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's part of the idea with the, this whole, you know, conceit of pulling together these closely released things is like, you know, in some cases it'll be like more or less likely that someone will have gone through both, but just this mm -hmm. idea of like, what is sort of available to you in this moment for thinking through whatever sort of topics is, is out there, like in literature and in film. And it's like, you can kind of just go and watch this film and, you know, go home and read the story. And that could be like one day 
of your life. And then it's like to like see those visions overlap as like a, a much deeper filter onto the world. Yeah, I really like the idea of, of thinking about these two, you know, pretty disparate <laughs> types of works, but it was a surprisingly good duo to pick, I think. There's like way more overlap than I expected. Yeah. Um, all right. So, so yeah, as I was saying before, thank you so much for <laughs> doing this. This is, you know, really great to sort of think through and talk through. Thank you. Thanks for organizing this. And I'll leave you all off with one last passage from the story to think about. When I was a child, we lived the way people had lived in Rare forever. It is that way, that timeless world, that world around the corner I've been thinking about and trying to describe for people who never knew it. Yet as I write, I see how also nothing changes, that it is truly the year one always, for each child that comes of age, each lover who falls in love.